Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast, episode 24, titled, Let's Get Physical. Today, we will explore what it looks like to see our faith, our belief, and even our understanding of God as something concrete, something physical, something that is real and alive, something we can taste and touch and see, feel, hear, and smell. Uh, One thing, however, before we jump into that, Uh, I'm excited to tell you that uh, March 13 through 22, 2019, March 13 through the 22nd, I am leading a pilgrimage to Israel and Palestine alongside my good friend, Kent Dobson. Kent studied there for something like five years, and he has a firm grasp and keen insight on the land. And every time I speak with Kent or I'm with Kent, I learned something. Actually, I would say I learned several things. Uh, He and I led a trip there in 2017, and now a second trip is on the horizon. So if you have any interest in going, uh, I need you to email me at Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, Michael at Michael-Hidalgo.com. Hidalgo is spelled H-I-D-A-L-G-O.com. Michael at michael-hidalgo.com. And I need you to give me your name, your mailing address, and your phone number. And by the way, you don't have to live in Denver to be a part of this trip. And so when you send me the email, I will follow up with you and we'll give you more details uh, about the trip. And we really hope that you can join with us because there is something about kicking around in the dust together that causes our faith to become Uh, I would say more concrete, actually, which brings us back to what we want to discuss today. What would it look like for our faith to become more concrete? What might change if we understood our faith as something that's right here in front of us? What in us might grow if we understood God as more present and far more tangible in every single moment than maybe we've ever imagined? And I ask this because for many of us, God is out there somewhere, whatever that somewhere is. And we talk often of our faith and it stops at the level of belief or conviction or doctrine. And there's very little that that seems to be integrated in our concrete reality, which means many of us are tasked with figuring out how this spiritual abstract thing we call religion connects with or fits into our everyday life. And I mean, is it any wonder so many of us feel confused or disillusioned or disheartened with the Christian faith? So many people talk about like how it just doesn't have any bearing on their everyday life. It's not relevant is one thing that I often hear. And so today I wanna walk through a few ideas. First, I wanna talk about knowing about knowing. Second, talk about an ancient magician. Third, sex in recycling bins and dirt. And finally, old stories, long walks, and ordinary people. And then maybe talk about some next steps. So with all of that said, first, knowing about knowing. Now, many of you know, if you've listened to the podcast, that throughout my life, I was taught about God nonstop. But what I was taught were all kinds of ideas about God, that God is omnipotent, God is omnipresent, God is omniscient, God is immutable, God is unchangeable or eternal and sovereign. And the list goes on and on. And all these things that I was taught 
are called the attributes of God. And each of them, as I learned, had a corresponding Bible verse or a series of verses that proved every single one of those attributes true. So these attributes and these verses were all intended to tell me who God is. The idea being, if we learn this attribute or that, that attribute and why it actually matters, we can know God more. And as a kid who went to Christian elementary school and then Christian middle school and a Christian high school, I went to Bible college as a freshman and then a private Christian college and then on to seminary. Some of you at this point are thinking to yourselves, my goodness, that guy is so sheltered. And let's be honest, you'd probably be right. Um, but these attributes, these teachings about God were ingrained in my mind. I wrote papers about them in doctrine classes. I had many robust discussions about the outworking of these ideas in systematic theology classes and in Sunday school. And by the time that I was in college, I knew these doctrines backward and forward. And truth be told, I was pretty good at arguing about them and proving them correct, or I should say, proving my point. You see, this way of learning in, in arguing, it wasn't just about God. See, I learned dogma and doctrines and theology about heaven and about hell, about the Bible, about the church and how the universe came into existence. I learned about how I am a sinner and, and who Jesus was and who Jesus is and what's going to happen at the end of the world. I learned about the precise order and timing of the events that will bring about the end of the world. And all of these things, just like the attributes of God, they all had attending Bible verses and were often presented as propositional truths or propositional statements. And what was subtly caught and taught within this style of learning and thinking was that faith was primarily mental assent to certain ideas that people at some point wrote down and people after them agreed with what it was that was written down and they passed it on. The thing is, these ideas had very little connection to life right here and right now. For example, like God is omnipotent, God is all powerful, God is sovereign. Okay, fine. So explain to me how so much evil is happening in the world every single day. I mean, if God is omnipotent, why doesn't God stop it? Uh, if God is all powerful, is it that he's actually really all powerful, but just doesn't care? You see, for me, the way people talked about their faith and the way that I was taught about faith really seemed to lack any connection to my real life in the real world. And it didn't seem to really produce any kind of broader thinking about connection to real life in this real world. A, a few years back, I was really wrestling with this and contemplating this. And anytime I heard someone speak Christianese, which is like the, the Christian subculture language, I would ask them questions about what they actually meant when they were saying those things. And it was surprising how few people were using this language to suggest ideas, but they couldn't actually seem to come up with an answer that was substantive, an answer that meant something in the real world. There was one thing I heard over and over. People would say, you know, I really wanna grow in my faith. I wanna become more like Jesus. And I would say, well, what does that mean? And there was kind of like a stop, like, well, I want to be, 
Like, do you want to be like more well-behaved? Do you want to become more compassionate? Like, wh what do you mean? And it was interesting, not only that when people couldn't exactly put their finger on what they meant, but they also couldn't tell me why they wanted to become more like Jesus. And for those who were able to explain a little bit, the responses, honestly, they had very little connection to their life on this ball of dirt we call earth that's orbiting a star we call the sun. And what I learned is that this tradition for many is largely ideas about God who feels distant and removed. Ideas that if we do wrap our head around them or we're able to explain them, then that is called faith. And these ideas in this tradition, their stated goal was to get to heaven, which is getting out of here. So not only were the ideas removed from everyday life, but the goal was actually deeply removed from being here on this earth. Now, now here's the thing. Ideas are not bad in and of themselves, but you can't fall in love with ideas. You can't experience intimacy with ideas. You see, I knew all about God. And I would say I knew all about God, even to an impressive degree. But what I learned is I didn't know God. The writer of the letter to the Corinthian church says, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. Let me say that again. Those who think they ought to know something do not yet know as they ought to know. You see, that was me and still is in so many ways. I thought I knew something. Actually, I would say I thought I knew a lot. But what I did not know, what I was ignorant of, what I was blind to, was knowing as I ought to know. Now, let me pause here for a second and observe something. It's entirely possible some of you listening are thinking to yourself, man, I think I get what he's saying here, um, but it's a little bit hard to follow. What exactly is he actually saying or talking about? Which, let me point this out. One of the reasons it's hard to follow is because we've been talking about abstract ideas. And how do we explain abstract ideas when we want people to understand something? We use concrete, real-life examples because this is what we relate to. So, so let me give you an example of knowing as I ought to know. Now, I've been married for 19 years, and I've known my wife for 26 years. And if you and I were hanging out and you asked me about my wife and our relationship and I replied, yes, well, we met when we were 16 years old. Actually, she's three months and three weeks older than I am. Anyway, we met in Grand Rapids, Michigan. She has light brown hair. She's five feet eight inches tall and was born in Southern California. She played basketball, volleyball, and softball in high school. She's quite the athlete. So much so she went on to play volleyball in college. Speaking of college, it was our senior year that I came to the conclusion that she met the qualifications I had for a wife. Now, if that's the way I talked about it, you would think this is the most bizarre thing I've ever heard in my life. Now, here's, here's what's interesting, though. I can actually prove to you every single one of those things that I just said about my wife is true. And while I can prove all of those statements, if I spoke to you like that, what it would suggest to you is that there's very little intimacy in our relationship. Now, if you ask me about my wife, who I've known for 26 years and been married to for 19 years, you would probably expect me to say something about like what it was like the first time we hung out. 
which, by the way, was September 18, 1992, which was seven years to the day before we got married. We got married September 18, 1999. And I remember the night when I got home after hanging out with her, journaling about this girl that I hung out with. Everything in me at the age of 16 was deeply drawn to her in a way I still cannot explain. And quite honestly, I don't care if I ever can. And I might tell you about uh, her smile, that when she smiles, it, it casts this energy and joy and love that is felt all throughout the universe. I would talk about how her and I communicate without ever saying a word and how she listens to every single one of my podcasts, which means she's listening to this part and she's feeling a bit embarrassed. And at the same time, she has a bit of a smirk on her face, listening to her husband and her life partner gush about the kind of person she is. And I would go on and on and on and on and on. So much so you'd actually be really sorry you actually asked me in the first place. But you'd be thinking, my goodness, this dude is over the moon for his wife. And while you might not exactly say the words, quote, he knows his wife, there is something in the way I would respond that would suggest that I know her as I ought to know her. And here's the thing, I can't actually prove to you anything I just said. I can't prove to you that I was somehow deeply drawn to her from the moment I met her. I can't prove to you what her smile does all throughout the universe, but you know exactly what I mean when I say that. And you would never actually ask me to prove it because you know that if you had the experience that I had, you too would just no. Interesting, isn't it? If all I had about her were facts or ideas that I could prove, that wouldn't make much of a marriage. Because if all we have are abstract information and ideas about people, we don't have much in the way of concrete skin and bone relationships. Because you and me and everyone who's ever lived, we are flesh living in a concrete world, not a world of ideas, but a real world in which we experience real everyday life from the mundane to the tragic, the good, the beautiful, the painful. And we learn and we know in a way that does not stop at the level of ideas. So what happens then when our faith is just ideas? Like what happens when you find out that your mom was diagnosed with a terminal illness? Or what do you do when you, when you learn that your spouse has been unfaithful or your kids tell you they never wanna to speak to you again or you get fired from your job or you wound someone you love deeply with your words even though you've said a thousand times you would never do that again? You see, in those moments, ideas don't get us very far. In those painful moments, we need something to sustain us. We need something real. We need something near to us. We need something, or maybe I should be saying, we need someone that we know and someone who knows us. You see, when our faith is mere mental assent to particular ideas or thoughts or doctrines, integrating our faith into everyday life feels almost impossible. Maybe this is why so many people are leaving organized religion. It doesn't fit into the real world. And so why do we even need it? And so I wanna ask, how did we get here? 
Like, how did we get to a place where ideas and abstract forms of religion are, for many, the, quote, foundation of our lives or the foundation of our beliefs? And so to answer those questions, I want to talk about an ancient magician. The Greek author Luke wrote a book that we now call the Book of Acts, and it's made up of stories from the life and times of the early followers of Jesus. And one story is about a fellow who's known known as Simon the Magician or Simon the Sorcerer, and he's also known as Simon Magus. He is spoken of elsewhere too, by the way. Josephus, who's an ancient historian, talks about him. Uh, St. Justin and Irenaeus, who were early church fathers, talk about him. And, And whenever he's spoken about, particularly within the Christian tradition, this ancient magician is not spoken of fondly. He was thought to be the chief antagonist of Peter and an enemy of the followers of Jesus. And there's a lot written about him. And one thing that I want to focus on is how his teaching and thinking has endured right up to the present within the church, within the Christian tradition. Now you might be going, well, wait, did I hear that right? I I thought you said he was an enemy and an antagonist, but now you're saying his thinking has endured in the church up until this moment? Yes, Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. So stay with me and we'll sort all this out because we need to wade through a little bit of history and philosophy. Actually, I would say we need to talk about some abstract ideas. So with that said, scholars agree Simon Magnus uh, was a powerful Gnostic teacher and some contend he was the founder of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was seen as one of the greatest threats to the early church. This is why Simon Magus was labeled the father of all heresies. And if this is such a big deal historically, then we should probably know what Gnosticism is. Uh, Many believe that Gnosticism borrowed from Platonic thought and and possibly from Zoroastrianism, which was a uh, religion that was founded and came out of Iran. But but many believe that by the second century, it kind of came into its own. So I'm going to leave a lot out in an attempt to summarize the core beliefs um, as I've learned them about Gnostic thinking or Gnosticism. Uh, It teaches that the universe as we've come to know it, so it's space, time, matter, that it's pretty much a bad place. And uh, it was bad from its origins because there was a lesser God, or they would say a foolish God, who, without the permission of the highest God, uh, went on to create the universe, went on to create the world. They actually said, we see this in Genesis 1. So we read about the creation of the world in Genesis 1, this creation poem about this almighty God who spoke things into existence, and the Gnostics would say, no, that's a lesser God and a foolish God who went off and did something stupid. So the highest God, however, swindled the foolish creator. Because without the consent of the foolish God or the foolish creator, this highest God gave humanity a higher or divine substance. Uh, They called it a spirit or a soul or a spark or light. And this was done by the highest God to give humanity a way to see through the evil of this material world and perceive the work of the foolish God for what it is. It's bad, it's wrong, it's evil. And with this divine substance within humanity, we will be able to escape this bad world and return to the highest level of existence. And we will spend eternity in a disembodied existence in the heavens with the highest God. So the Gnostics view was this. They said at the end of all things, 
the physical cosmos would dissolve or blow apart, however you want to say it, and we as human beings would return as sparks into the capital L light. We would be set free from this nasty, mortal, physical world. And the way we would escape is through gaining knowledge, which in Greek is gnosis, which is where the name Gnostic comes from. And in this knowledge about the the true or highest God, this God uh, we learn has little interest in the physical world because this highest God didn't make the physical world, the lower God or the foolish God did. In fact, this God actually doesn't care much about this physical world at all. What this highest God cares about is what is the highest form of reality, which is the spirit or the spark or the soul or the spiritual. Thankfully then, the Gnostics would say, we have this knowledge, which in part is how this wicked world was made and the knowledge of who you and I really are as truly immaterial spiritual beings. Your soul, we might say, is what really matters. So simplifying to the extreme, here's a summary of Gnosticism. If you possess the right knowledge or ideas or beliefs, you can be freed from your mortal body and enjoy a disembodied eternity with God in heaven. How many of you have heard something like this before? Oh, but by the way, I'm raising my hand. Okay, this, this way of thinking, this kind of knowledge is what the early church said was one of the most dangerous teachings out there. Now, fast forward about 1,300 years, and especially in the West, we came to believe that reason and rationalism and empiricism soared above any experience one could have. Meaning this, if we can prove it, it is true. If we cannot prove it, it is not true. And so we began to think if we can argue or prove God's existence, if we can argue for or prove the authority or the inspiration of the Bible or persuade others through proof and argumentation that our beliefs are plausible and true, then we are in a good place. It is knowledge above experience in the same way that it was spiritual above the physical. And if you're anything like me, when you were growing up, you might have an experience that disrupted your knowledge. Something happened and it was contradictory to what you were told we should believe. And when you said, I'm gonna trust my experience or I had this experience and what I've been taught, these ideas, they don't make sense, they don't add up. You were told, well, you lack faith. This, by the way, is why doubt is often considered by people who believe that ideas are the substance of our faith. That's why they say like, doubt is bad. You shouldn't doubt God. This is why questions about our faith are spurned because ultimately we're not supposed to rely on our experiences. We're supposed to trust our knowledge. Ideas, meaning that which is immaterial or non-physical, for me growing up, ideas, statements, propositional truths, they were always held to be more important than our lived experiences, our experiences which are deeply material and very physical and extremely concrete. And so we were told that bring our ideas and have them be above all of that. Thinking like this, by the way, it's not faith. It's a mental exercise in which we seek to answer the questions and prove our beliefs and hold this new knowledge. We can't trust, I was told growing up, you can't trust your physical experiences. 
Do not lean toward visceral responses, but rather trust your rational thinking. It's ideas over experiences. It's spiritual over physical, proof over experience. You see, it's like we never really shook the dust of Simon Magus off our collective shoes. In so many ways within the Christian tradition, we continue to hold the immaterial above the material, which brings us then to sex and recycling bins and dirt. One of the reasons why the early church rejected this teaching about the the spiritual being more important than the physical is because of Jesus. They rejected this teaching because Jesus became flesh and bone. Jesus became material. Now the Gnostics said, oh no, 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 none of that was real. Uh, Jesus in flesh and bone, it was just actually an apparition. It like, was some sort of like hologram. Um, but, but central to the Christian tradition has long been that Jesus was, no, he was actual flesh and skin and bone, that Jesus was as human as it gets. Now, this is important for all kinds of reasons, but I wanna talk about one aspect of Jesus's humanity, Jesus being a flesh and bone from the Franciscan tradition. See, the idea of Jesus putting uh, flesh and bone on is well known because we celebrate it every Christmas. And we call it, uh, or scholars, however you want to say it, they, they call it the incarnation. It's God becoming human. And according to Richard Rohr, he, he writes that the Franciscans have always believed the incarnation was already redemption. Because in the birth of Jesus, God was already saying that it was good to be human and God was on our side. Now, many of us grew up learning just the opposite. It's, it's not good to be human. We are born sinners. We're born hating God. How can he say that it's good to be human? Is it possible that we disagree with this because much of what we've been taught to believe about God, life, the Bible, Jesus, it's more Gnostic. It's not good to be human because spiritual is better than physical. You see, it might be that it's rooted in our belief that this world is bad, that our bodies are bad, that God is going to open up a can on all of it someday. Uh, but before he does, the faithful are going to get out of here and go there, out of here being earth and go there, which is heaven. And we're gonna get to avoid all of the, the punishment. And I know many who have long believed this idea and seem to have missed the story of this world being good. And not only this world being good, but the story about you and me and our physical selves being good. And I would argue we actually, we haven't just missed it. We seem to preach the opposite. You see, in all my years as a pastor, I have never been able to broach the subject of sex without there being like awkward laughs from the audience and a little bit of like shifting in the seats, even among adult, adults, by the way. And I, and I know this happens because the church has traditionally in the way we've spoken about sex, made the idea of it just seem evil and bad and like you're somehow messed up if you ever really think about this in any context whatsoever outside of monogamous marriage. You are, you are bad, you are terrible, you are evil. You have sexual desire, evil. You have sexual thoughts, evil. You have interest in sex, evil. 
And every time we talk about sex this way, we ask those listening to us to swallow a teaspoon of shame. And it's not helpful and it's not healthy. And I can tell you this, as a kid growing up, and by the way, this is true of all of us, like all kids. But at some point, all, like I woke up and there was all of these hormones raging through every fiber of my body. I didn't ask for it, it just happened. And suddenly I became intensely interested in girls. I felt things in my body that I had never felt before. And what was in front of my mind the whole time when I was attracted to someone or when I had sexual thoughts or desires or what, it was how bad I was, which meant I couldn't talk about it. You had to bury it because this is bad. I had to mentally ascend, transcend all of this to, to into these like ideas about purity and all these other things because the church, the church has been experts at bringing shame into most any conversation about sex. And I wanna ask the question, why? Like what's behind that? I mean, almost everyone I speak with who grew up in the conservative church has the same experience. So why? What's behind that? Is it possible that there is an assumption that anything that has to do with skin and flesh is somehow bad? Like, do we assume that sexual desires and pleasures are actually evil? And even though we were created to enjoy this, that somehow like there's something wrong with us if we long for this. How is it that those who grew up in conservative Christian environments who received constant negative messages about sex, it's been shown that they exhibit in adulthood the same kind of symptoms as those who've been sexually abused. This is how far it's gone. You see, I believe it's entirely possible. We don't know what to do with the physical. We don't know what to do with the concrete. We believe that spiritual is better than physical, that ideas are better than lived experiences. I mean, think about the very dirt from which we are formed, according to the creation poems in Genesis 1 and 2. You see, many Christians don't seem to be very keen on the dirt either, or the earth, we should say. The earth is good, by the way. This is what we learn from Genesis 1 and 2. And we should celebrate the exquisite work that it is. You see, just like you and me in our bodies, the rest of the universe is all, every single square inch of it. It is all good. But just like sex, many Christians, in my experience, have a hard time thinking about the earth in any positive way as well. A few years ago, I was at a friend's house uh, and I had a can of beer and I, when I was finished, I said, hey, do you, do you have a recycling bin? And their response, they said, no, we just toss it. Or, and then they said, are you one of those tree huggers? And I, I hemmed and hawed a little bit before answering because sometimes you just don't want to like engage difficult conversations. And uh, so then I kind of qualified my position with regard to caring for our environment and how I felt for the er about the earth and that we should steward this and care for it. And, and the response was rather swift and a little bit surprising. They said something like, well, if you think you can change things, go ahead. But wait until you see what God's gonna do with the place. <laughs> I mean, the idea was obvious. This person believed God was going to absolutely destroy the entire universe, incinerate the whole thing. Why? Because it's a useless habitation of evil. Thankfully, in this person's thinking, we don't have to worry so long as we have the right belief because we will be in a disembodied bliss somewhere else. 
Um, do you hear the Gnostic belief in there? You see, while many may not be this overt in their attitudes, uh, why is it that many Christians aren't vocal supporters of environmentalism? Why is it that people who grew up with ideas as central to their belief aren't there championing the environmental causes that so many people are involving themselves in? You see, many believe that this is a political issue and doesn't demand our involvement. Or I've heard others say it's periphery to the central issue of the gospel, which the central issue of the gospel for those who say that is us getting to heaven. So they ignore these conversations. There was a study just released by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, which is the United Nations climate change body. And it outlines the impact of climate change. It warns that the world is rapidly running out of time and that the planet will see catastrophic effects. It was largely Christians in America who collectively rolled their eyes at this news. And the excuse is, well, we shouldn't worry about it. Like, we're gonna be fine. I've heard others say like, well, this is what's happening at the end times, meaning this is what's going to happen before we all get out of here. Or they chalk it up to being political. And I wonder myself, like, how, how have so many people who follow a flesh and bone Jesus become so numb to what's real in our world that they can just dismiss it as political and by doing so, ban it from consciousness? Maybe, maybe, We've inherited this kind of thinking from Simon Magus. And I say this because it's not just issues like the environment, that's the physical real world, but it's also things like immigration, racial equity, same-sex marriage, uh, women's equity, the Me Too movement. All of these things is that they are physical, earthly, real, human flesh and bone issues that are concrete and tangible right here and right now. But for so many it seems to be like, no, those are political issues. And so it's possible that when our faith is first and foremost about ideas or about an afterlife somewhere else and about us getting out of there and about a God who's up there somewhere, it's possible that we lack the vision to engage these real earthly issues with any real conviction because we actually don't know as we ought to know. And it's possible the reason these earthly issues have been relegated to being political is because the church has long become, in the words of the prophet Johnny Cash, so heavenly minded, we are no earthly good. We've ceased in large part speaking about these things. So who's left to carry on the conversation? Politicians. And when that happens, by the way, it devolves into partisan bickering. At Denver Community Church, I've had so many people say over the years that we are, quote, too political. And what is meant when people say that, and I know what's meant because every time someone says that to me, I ask them, is that we talk about the most pressing issues unfolding in our context. I, had, I, I made a comment one Sunday to my sisters in the, in the room uh, about the Me Too movement, asking their forgiveness as a man who was both willfully ignorant and complicit uh, in, a, in a toxic masculinity, in, in a patriarchal culture. Uh, and I had someone say, oh man, yeah, this is way too political. Okay, wait, wait, me too is political? Women being sexually harassed in the workplace, sexually abused, raped, a culture of silence around, that's political? When we speak about immigration, I have people say, well, you know, if they're here illegally, it's against the law. This is a political conversation. It has no place in, in church. 
And I'm always like, wait, wait, wait. Have you, have you read the Bible? Because it's filled with verses about how we are to love and care for the immigrant. You see, we've chosen to focus on these spiritual ideas, on getting to heaven, the immaterial, and it has left so many of us unconcerned about this world because we have already, in some ways, like, it's like we've mentally departed for the next. It's almost like we've forgotten our story as humans. I mean, remember where we began according to the creation poem. Dirt. <laughs> That's where we began. We are dirt. And if you read Genesis 1 literally, then you are dirt, and to dirt you will return. And here is where, why I think returning uh, to a physical understanding, a dirt understanding, we might say, really matters, is because we as human beings often see ourselves as apart from the universe rather than a part of the universe. We see ourselves as apart from it, as though we're above it, over it. We, we don't somehow have this deep-rooted connection to it. Rather than seeing ourselves as a part of it, so much so that we are dirt and to dirt we will return. We often fail to see our connection to this world, to trees and to rocks and to wildlife and streams and the clouds and to the sunshine. We are a part of this wild, beautiful, mysterious universe as those who bear the image of the divine within us and on us. And maybe the fact that we have forgotten is also why we seem just fine with destroying the planet and not caring for it and not caring well, not only for the environment, but for all these other issues that, that are in front of us. Because we see ourselves as a part from it, not a part of it. Man, whew, that was a lot. Okay. So what now? Well, let, let's talk about some next steps. I want to suggest that it may help us to learn how to root ourselves deeply in this world, on this planet, in this dirt, in our skin, remembering that the universe pulses with the life of God. The writer of Colossians says, in Christ, all things are held together. Christ is all and is in all. John begins his gospel by saying, in Christ, all things were made. There's something deeply sacred, the biblical writers tell us, about every last particle in this universe of ours because Christ is in it and he's holding it all together. You see, it turns out God is intensely physical. Now, some of you might be like, whoa, 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 hey, this is pantheism. no. No, no, and here's why. Pantheism is the belief that God is all things and that all things are God. So like the tree that you're looking at as you drive down the road listening to this, that tree is God. That would be pantheism. The approach that I'm talking about of Christ being all and being in all is called panentheism, not pantheism. Meaning God is in all things and all things are in God, but God is more than all things. God is greater than the sum of everything because God is incomprehensible. And there's a wide difference between the uncreated and the created. And this idea of Christ being in all, this panentheism, see, this has the power to lead us beyond ideas, beyond making Christ or our, our beliefs an academic study or a doctrinal formula. Because when we do that, I believe that Christ in our faith, our tradition loses vitality and meaning for our everyday lives. 
You see, this is about learning to see and to know God is here. And I wanna suggest that, that thinking this way, it's a reframing of how we relate to God. God is not an idea to be believed, but God is the very ground of being that animates all life and holds all of this together. Norman Wurzba writes that God fashions the first human being by taking the dust of the ground into his hands and holding it so close that it can share in the divine breath and inspiring it with the freshness of life. It is only as the ground is suffused with God's intimate breathing presence that human life, along with the life of trees and animals and birds, is possible at all. He writes, God draws near to the earth and then animates it from within. Oh, what beautiful commentary about the life, the breath of God from Genesis chapter one. Paul, by the way, in his message, in his uh, speech to the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17, says something like this too. He says, God gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God did this so that we would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. You see, this has always been the story from the very beginning. And here's what's interesting. We call ourselves followers of Jesus. We call ourselves Christians. And I think it's really helpful to consider Jesus because the closest I got to transcending ideas when I was growing up was in fact the person of Jesus, the one who put on skin and bone, the one who lived out God in front of us, the one who showed us what God looks like. But if we learn to know Jesus, what we might learn to know is that it wasn't like Jesus showed up and this is the first time God was seen in any kind of physical way. Robert Capon, one of my favorite authors, helps us understand this. This is what he writes. He says, the mysterious reconciling grace that was revealed in Jesus is not something that got its acting gear for the first time in Jesus. Rather, it's a feature of the very constitution of the universe a feature that was there all along for everybody and everything. And it was there, Christians believe, because the person who manifests himself finally and fully in Jesus's humanity is no other than the word of God, the second person of the three persons in the, of the one God who is intimately and immediately present to every scrap of creation from start to finish. Man, that is so beautiful. So as we conclude I wanna talk about old stories, long walks, ordinary people, and some questions about vision. I, I wanna invite you to read a book of old stories. We, we call them, by the way, the Gospels. And as you do, it might be helpful to recognize the Gospels, like most of the rest of the Bible, is not a list of beliefs. The Gospels are, are filled with stories of humanity love, disappointment, grief, violence, joy, laughter, dancing, drunkenness, adultery, loss, betrayal, murder, parenting, sons and daughters, conflict, friendship. I mean, it's all there. And I invite you to turn your attention there because we have this dynamic, sacred collection of stories about real human experience and often we ignore it. And it's possible we ignore it because 
we've come to believe it's just about all these ideas that have to be proven or that we have to mentally ascend to, or it's this list of propositions. No, 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 no. One thing that brought me back to loving the Bible is recognizing the Bible is primarily stories. And it was beginning to read these stories and asking myself as I read them, where do I find myself in this story? Or what about this story is challenging the way that I live? What about this story parallels our current situation in our culture? Or what does this story say about God or about life or about the world? Remember, we are story-based creatures, you and I. We live a narrative. And we have within our tradition a narrative-based or a story-based sacred book. Read this like literature. One thing you might try, read super long portions of the Bible. Years ago, I decided I was going to read through the Bible in 30 days. And there was something about the dynamic story that came alive in a way that I couldn't explain. When I got to the end of Deuteronomy, spoiler alert, and Moses died, I I found myself emotional because I read through like the first five books of the Bible in just a couple of days. I I watched Moses' life progress from this infant who was put in a stream or in the Nile River to, to save his life to this old man who overlooks the promised land and is buried by God. There's something powerful when we read long portions and enjoy it and read it like literature and throw ourselves into the story and find ourselves participating in this ongoing conversation between God and between humanity. Allow this sacred text to lead you above mere ideas and toward deep-rooted narrative-based story and relationship to God and to others and yourself and the world and to all things. Because if we think in terms of relationship, we may begin to see how God is screaming through all things in every moment and all the time. Or as the psalmist puts it, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. You see, one of the things I've been doing is I've been taking long walks lately. And as I walk, I observe as much as possible. And right now we're in the midst of autumn and there's leaves falling everywhere and they're rotting and decaying in yards and in the woods. And the ancients believed that this was some sort of process of dying. And they knew this was a cycle because if the leaves didn't fall and die, they would not turn back to dirt and the dirt would not be given life through the decay of the leaves. And they also knew that this wasn't the end of the tree. Somehow this tree that was dying would return back to life. The poet Rainer Maria Rilke talks about how trees don't live in fear that the next season will not come. They go through this process of dying and renewing because they know that in the death, what will follow is life. So hang on for a second. The ancients say, the poets say, death brings life. The trees tell a story every season. Death brings life. Where have we heard that before? It seems like even falling leaves tell a story. So what if you took a walk, a long walk, with no cell phone, by the way. Please don't put this on Instagram, okay? Like, what if you took a long walk and you walked slowly, like painfully slow, 
What if you went into the woods and kicked around in the decaying leaves? What if you looked at them turning back to dirt? What if you observed the death that's all around in autumn, knowing with the, every leaf that falls, with every bit of decay, Christ is somehow holding this all together? And what if as you observe this, you consider the ways in which you have died and how that death brought life? Or maybe you, you wonder what in me needs to die and fall away to make room for new growth knowing that in the painful process of death, God is right with you. Now, I don't wanna to be too prescriptive, but there is something about a slow walk, especially in the woods and the mountains. I mean, I know so many people who talk about feeling a deep connection with God in the mountains. Why? Because Christ is all and is in all. And we spend so much of our time locked indoors with air conditioning and heat and artificial light. We, we don't hear the sounds of a stream that's cutting through the forest floor or hear the wind whipping across the top of a peak. We are locked in a sanitized world filled with ideas. So get outside. And as you do, walk slow and look around and maybe even talk out loud about how you see God. This is what I do on my long walks. I look at the trees and everything else that I see and talk out loud about God being in all and God, Christ, being all. And maybe if you take this step, you may come to realize how connected we are to this universe that we are not apart from it, that we are a part of it, and that we are no ordinary people. C.S. Lewis in his essay, The Weight of Glory, writes, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. In them, Christ the glorifier and the glorified glory itself is truly hidden. Every single human being who has ever lived has the breath of the divine in their lungs. There is a glory hidden within them. The question is not whether it's there. The question is, do you see it? Do I see it? Will we allow ourselves to see it? I walked around for months and I still often do this after reading that quote uh, from, from C.S. Lewis. And uh, I walked around looking at people and I would say to myself, uh, that is not a mere mortal. That is is not an ordinary person. Every single time I saw a person, I would say, that's no ordinary mortal. That's no ordinary person. That's not a mere mortal. Over and over and over again. And what was fascinating is in a way that I cannot explain, I began to see the glory of God that's hidden within all people. It, it honestly changed the way I would go through a checkout line at the supermarket. It changed the way I would treat my server at a restaurant. It changed the way I spoke to my kids because there are no ordinary people. There are no more mere mortals. We all have the glory of God hidden within us. It changed the way I see things, which leads me to some questions about vision. What do you see when you look at our universe? Is it sacred? Is it alive? Is it pulsing with the divine? Is it inviting you into relationship? Is it telling you that you are a part of it, not apart from it? In what ways do you see Christ holding it all together? What do you see when you look at our universe? Second question about vision. What do you see when you look at another person? Do you see just an ordinary person? Let, let's be honest. Do you see someone who annoys you nonstop? What do you see when you encounter the person you love the least? 
When you look at another person, do you see a clump of dirt fashioned by divine hands and enlivened by the spirit of God? Do you see the holiest object presented to your senses? Third question about vision. What do you see when you look at yourself? Do you see a beloved child? Do you see a beautiful work of the Almighty? Do you see someone who, when beheld in the gaze of God, our loving parent, do you recognize the total and complete and unfathomable love of God? Do you see, when you look at yourself, someone who is held in Christ? You see, as we begin to relate to the world in which we live and relate to each other and relate to ourselves, as we get physical, I believe we will begin to reach a place beyond ideas. And some of these questions that we just asked about vision, those might be your next steps. Taking a long walk, that might be your next step. Walking around and saying, every time you look at a person, this is no ordinary person, this is no mere mortal, that might be a next step. And I believe that taking these steps will in time, they have the power to teach us how to know as we ought to know. We may not be able to prove God or defend our beliefs or argue as to why our religion is more viable than others any more than we would have to prove or defend or argue about why we love our closest friends. It's possible we will come to a place that is beyond ideas, a place where we will know as we ought to know. And my hope is that as we move into this kind of love, into this kind of living, into this kind of relationship, we would know that in our worst moments, in our most painful seasons, in our greatest joys, in our highest successes, that Christ is in all of it. And that we would come to a place where we might find ourselves struggling even to be able to talk about or describe or explain what we know and how we know God. And that we, in those moments where we can't even explain it, that we would know it's only because our faith is no longer just a propositional truth or an idea. And just like the things that mean the most to us, we are talking about something or someone that is here and present and real and concrete. We're talking about someone that we know as we should know and we know it in a real physical way. And it's precisely because of that, just like our most treasured moments and our most sacred relationships, we, we know we don't have to actually prove anything. And because of that, we will never find the words to explain it. And at the same time, we'll never stop talking about it. My hope is that we would get physical. And so may you, my friends, my brothers and my sisters, may you slow down. May you walk with unhurried steps. May you lift up your eyes to the stars and may you root yourselves in this world like the trees, and may you come to see the glory of God that shines in and through every last square inch of this sacred universe. And in this, may you come to see that the bushes are always burning and the ground is always holy and that the world is soaked and saturated in the divine presence. And may you know that Christ is all and is in all because day after day, you and me and all of us together are seeing that we are 
physical. And with that, thank you for joining with us again on the Changing Faith Podcast. On our next episode, we will spend time responding to your questions. And so if you have questions, uh, send them in over the next week. Michael at michael-hidalgo.com. Send those to me and we will do our best to engage those questions. But until then, as always, much love and peace be with you.